You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Okay, I'm going to put a verse up on the screen here to start this morning, kind of start from from this point. Uh, It's Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. And it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." So this verse is not very hard to understand. In the Hebrew, it means we don't think the same thing that God thinks at all. We don't think God's thoughts. We think we think God's thoughts. We think he agrees with us. A lot of us probably would profess to be Christians, and we would say, therefore, since I profess to be a Christian, I agree with God. God agrees with me. But it's not even close. You can go outside tonight, and you can look at the stars in the sky, and you can contemplate how far above us they are, and then you can think that's how different God's thoughts are from my thoughts. You know, I wonder how many of us don't read the Scriptures because we think we know what they say. It's the Bible. I'm a Christian. God and I are on the same page. What's the point in reviewing. But the truth is, and and what's amazing, is that through this book, we have access to God's thoughts. We have the Spirit of God, and we have the Word of God, so that we can know the things that God has revealed to us. And when we read it, whether you're reading it in the morning, during the week, or whether you're here, actually when we read God's Word, see, look, I just opened to Ezekiel. We should actually work through it and be like, okay, that's weird. All right, that's weird. Okay, uh, that, that hurts. Because that's how much his thoughts are not my thoughts. So here's what I want us to do this morning at the outset. I just want us to acknowledge that our hearts, as we open this word right here, as we open the word of God and as we look at it, our hearts will not be comfortable with everything that we find here. 
Okay? So, because of the way the passages fell, uh, Bill suggested that maybe we should do a little, a little something for Mother's Day, a little something different this week. I don't really want to call this a Mother's Day sermon, but I will call it a sermon on a passage about a mother. Okay? So, listen, I know that Mother's Day, um, it is not a celebration for everybody who is in this room, okay? Maybe you, uh, maybe you've had a rough year. Maybe you've lost your mother this year. Uh, maybe you want to be a mother and you can't be a mother uh, right now in God's providence. Maybe you're estranged from your mother. You don't have a good relationship with your mother, okay? So what I want us to do this morning is to just contemplate this particular woman. Hannah is her name in the Old Testament. And I want us to learn from her and, and the sufferings that, that we learn about and how she approaches God and how she lives as a very, very faithful woman in a faithless time, okay? Hannah's a very ordinary woman. She's a godly woman. She lives, like I said, in a faithless day. When we encounter her first, she is suffering, but she proves herself to be a woman of prayer, and she's the recipient of God's blessing when God answers her prayer. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 1, if you would. And while you do, I want to give us just a little bit of historical background that I hope, uh, hope you'll see is, is pretty relevant um, to even the day that we live in. So 1 Samuel, the book, opens at a very, very dark period in the history of Israel, okay? So if, you're, if you look through the contents of your Bible, Moses at the, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the first five books. Moses at the end of, of, of Deuteronomy has led the people into the promised land, or he's right on the edge of the promised land. Joshua picks up, and Joshua takes the people in, and he gets the hard work done of subduing the Canaanites who live there, okay? Then we have the book of Judges, and in the book of Judges, the people do not do what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go back to their little land, their tribes. They were supposed to continue the work that Joshua had started, but they didn't do that. And so what we see in the book of Judges is this sort of cycle that just gets worse and worse and worse throughout the book. The people rebel. God sends discipline in the form of, of, of invaders. They, they kind of repent. God sends a deliverer, and then it just all starts over again until... Judges, very strange book, very interesting read. At the end of Judges, things are in a pretty deplorable condition in Israel, okay? First Samuel opens in that day, all right? Uh, Hannah and her family are living in the day that is described for us at the end of the book of Judges. The last verse in the book of Judges, the very last book, says, uh, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes, does that sound familiar? Does that sound relevant? Okay, so, so we live in a similar day. We live in a day when I think it's safe to say that everyone sort of does what is right in their own eyes. So if we were going to have a meeting later on and we were going to decide how are we going to address this problem, we could get together over here, we could get a dry erase board, and we could come up with some ideas like, you know, elect better politicians, elect guys that are going to get a gift to job done. We could, have, we could legislate laws that maybe would improve, you know, morality in our nation. We could organize a march, right? We could go to a major city, and we could go, and we could chant, and, and we could make signs. Or we could remember that God's ways are not our ways, and we can look in this passage, and we can see that he takes a socially powerless individual who has great faith, and he uses her to transform a nation. 
and all she did was pray for a baby. All right, so that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, look with me. Let's read verses 1 through 8 in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Going to be some big, fancy names in this passage right here, all right? There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name, was other, the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, here we have this little introduction into the life of Hannah. And this is what we learn about Hannah. Hannah is the second wife of a man named Elkanah. And he's probably a pretty well-off man, uh, even given the fact that he has two wives. He lives up in the hill country of Ephraim. One of his wives, Hannah, has no children, and the other wife, Panina, has sons and daughters. And Panina spends a lot of time making Hannah's life miserable because she mocks her because she does not have children. Okay, so there's two things in this passage that obviously we need to discuss, okay? First of all, Polygamy, all right? So Elkanah has two wives, all right? So here's what we need to say about polygamy. The Bible is less clear on polygamy than probably that we wish that it was, okay? It's very strange that it's never explicitly condemned in the Old Testament, but even though it's never condemned, it clearly never leads to blessing, all right? Obviously, God's design in Genesis chapter 2 was that one, marry, one man would marry one woman. That was the way it was supposed to be. Um, in ancient cultural, cultural practices, it seems that this became something that some people did. Here's the thing about polygamy. Other than the fact that it wasn't God's way, it doesn't work. Okay, if you look at every single story in the Bible where there is more than one wife and a, and, a, and a husband, things are breaking down all over the place. Okay, just like it is here with with Panina and Hannah. Okay, so thankfully polygamy had pretty much disappeared by New Testament times, and and so we rarely see it. Really, really from like the, the Greeks and the Romans forward. Okay, all right. There's everything you need to know about polygamy today in the Bible. All right, number two, let's talk about barrenness. Okay, so the other thing that we have in this passage other than polygamy is barrenness. We've actually seen this. This is a little bit of a recurring theme for us over the last couple of years. We saw it in Sarai, who was barren, and, and when, God, when God called Abraham. We saw it even uh, in Luke with Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist's mother. And so here's the thing about barrenness. Over and over again in the Bible, barrenness is a major social stigma for the women, 
okay? And, and in verse 6 of this very passage, what we read is that God had closed Hannah's womb, okay? So this is no accident of nature. God is in control. Typically, it seems like that in these situations in the Bible, God is closing that womb for the purpose of, of raising up somebody or doing something big, and that's just what's going to happen here. But for our purposes this morning, the point of these, these verses here is Hannah is suffering, Not only does she endure the social stigma of not having a baby, but she has to live with another woman who mocks her endlessly, all right? So here's what's cool about Hannah, though. Hannah does not let her suffering drive her to bitterness. Hannah lets her suffering drive her to God, okay? So let's look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." All right, so they have traveled down to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, to participate in this festival, this religious festival. They're godly people. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And so they're all gathered around a table. They're feasting. There's a big party celebration going on. And Hannah is like, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. All this feasting. I've got Panina, you know, mocking me. I've had enough of this. And so she goes, and it says that she goes to the doorway of the temple. And and an old man, we'll talk about him in just a second, named Eli, is sitting there in the corner of of the temple. And, and, And the scripture says that she was deeply distressed and prayed and wept bitterly. The, the phrase wept bitterly there literally means she was bitter of soul. In the scriptures, think, remember, remember last summer when we looked at Ruth and, and Naomi? She, was, she moved to Moab, and she lost her husband and her two sons, and she came back to Bethlehem, and when she came back into town, she said, call me Mara, call me bitter. Job, Job speaks about being bitter of soul. When people are, are described as bitter of soul in the scriptures, what it usually means is that they have reached a point where they recognize that they have no earthly solution to the problem that they have and that they have no choice but to turn to God. Lord, if I'm going to get out of this, I have got to have your help. But don't miss the faith of her prayer. And and these are the kind of things that we read in the scripture and we just breeze over them and we miss them. But this is so important. She says, O Lord of hosts. Just think about that. This is an obscure woman who lives in the hill country of Ephraim, and she prays to God, the sovereign ruler, the creator of everything that exists. The creator of everything, she believes, will hear her broken-hearted prayer. The king of the universe, she believes, cares about her. Y'all, this is an amazing thing, and this should not go unnoticed. Isaiah, Isaiah 40, Isaiah says that the nations are like the dust on the scales to God. They're like the dust on the scale. So if the nations are like the dust of the scales, what does that make us? What does that make us as individuals? We're like, we're like less than the dust of the scales. 
We're tiny in all this vast universe that God has created, and we're on this one little planet, and we're these little tiny specks, and yet the creator of the universe does want to hear our prayers. The one who created all of this cares when we are bitter of soul. By all human reasoning, y'all, this makes no sense. So she makes a request for a son, and she concludes, she says, if you give me a son, God, she recognizes that everything she has will come from him. She says, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Let's keep looking. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking with her mouth, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, will you, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Okay, so Eli then, is, he should be the source of spiritual maturity in Israel in these dark days. And he's just doing his job. So when you were a teacher in Israel, if you were an authority, what you did, we, we would actually be doing the reverse of what we're doing right now if we were in Israel in that day. I would be sitting and y'all would be standing. Okay, that's when, when Jesus goes into the synagogue to teach, he sits down and everybody else is standing around him. Okay, so to be seated was a sign of authority. So Eli is doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's, he's sitting probably on some fancy chair there in the corner of the tabernacle and he's watching over the tabernacle, but he misses the point. Her lips are moving. He sees her lips, but he ignores her heart. And he mistakes her sincere devotion for drunkenness. And y'all, this morning, I want, I want you to be aware, because you're the body. And, and it's important that you pray for those who are elders and pastors and ministers in this body. It is a danger that we would become too comfortable in leadership, See, Hannah is on her knees, and she's weeping with bitterness of soul before God, and Eli's just sitting there in his fancy chair. And technically, it's Eli's job to help this person who's hurting right in front of him, but he's oblivious. And so, he's become like a maintainer in the house of God rather than a shepherd, and, and the warning here is that we as your leaders and that the people who are leading churches all across the United States would become comfortable with maintaining the externals of ministry. He wants to make sure that some drunken woman doesn't come in and make a mess in the tabernacle, and he misses that there is somebody hurting in her heart right in front of you. And so we enjoy... We enjoy a nice building. We enjoy plenty of resources. And, and we, too, could possibly just sort of stand outside in the front there and, you know, you be, be happy, be, be warm, be filled as, as hurting people come in and out of this place on Sunday mornings. 
And the danger is that we would become oblivious to the real needs of the church. Let me tell you something. Pray for us because as spiritual leaders, if we're not on our knees asking for God to intervene on the behalf of this body, then we are as clueless as Eli as to the true needs. So Eli sort of salvages the situation, but he does it barely. And, and don't read Eli's response as any kind of like, your prayer will be answered. He, he's simply saying, may the Lord, oh, oh, may the Lord grant your request, as he sort of sits there on his chair. But look at Hannah, okay? This is what Hannah says. It says about Hannah. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. See, Hannah's response is very interesting here because, once again, she could be a very bitter woman. She could be very bitter at Elkanah. She could be very bitter, bitter at Panina. And she could be really bitter at Eli. She could be like, she could have gone back to that feast and said, uh, Elkanah, we're, we're totally leaving this church. Like, we're out of here. Eli has, Eli has missed it. You know, he's maintaining his chair. I'm, I'm pouring out my heart. But she doesn't do that. And, and here's why. Because she's an example of living faith. She approached the Lord despondent, and she leaves refreshed and transformed. She doesn't put her hope in human beings. She puts her hope in God. And there may be some of you today, and let me just offer this encouragement to you. There may be some of you today who are despondent. You are in despair. But you're putting your hope in individuals, in people who are sinners and who are imperfect and who are weak and who are going to hurt you rather than coming to the God of the universe and pouring out your bitterness of soul to the one who can actually do something about it. And because Hannah is willing to do that, she leaves refreshed with, with a new perspective. See, she didn't need a baby she didn't even need to lose the status of being a barren woman. She didn't need God to take revenge on Panina. What she needed was the Lord. And the Lord sustains, and so she gets up with a new perspective, and she returns to the festival. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And when they went back to their house, and then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. Prayer is an amazing thing. God answers her prayer. He answers her prayer in a, a, a totally miraculous way in the sense that he opened her womb and she was able to conceive but the interesting thing about this passage, as amazing it is, and as praise God that answers, God answers prayer, it's kind of like a sub-point in this passage. Because what God does through answering her prayer for a baby is something even bigger than just give her a son. God is at work, and he is giving her a child who is going to be used mightily to bring Israel to repentance. Let's keep reading. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. 
Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. All right. What I want us to see here is that Elkanah and Hannah are a godly couple. They are a faithly couple. They're not, they're not perfect. They're very much children of their day, but they are, they are a faithful couple. Remember the, the last verse of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's not a lot of people in this day who are bothering with sincere devotion to the Lord. But El- Elkanah is faithful, and he gets up. Every year he goes to um, the, the, the temple in Shiloh. He makes his sacrifices. He's not doing it to check boxes. He's doing it because it's right, and that's what he wants to lead his family to do. While everybody else is doing what's right in their own eyes. Elkanah and Hannah are worshiping the true God with their lives. Now add to this that Samuel grows up to be a godly man, and you have something that I think is worth considering for us this morning, and that is this. How important is the spiritual life of parents to the spiritual life of their children? All right. Bear with me, and let's explore a little sociology here for a moment, okay? I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and so I used to read on things like this, because I'm, it's what I did. I wanted to find out more about what was going on with teenagers. So this, this kind of landmark study was, was uh, published a few years ago by a professor at the University of North Carolina. So this is not a Christian man. It's not a Christian study. His name is Christian Smith. He may be a Christian. I don't know. But he, the, the, the study was not motivated out of any, like, Christian institution, okay? The name of the book was Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. So what they did is they conducted thousands of phone interviews of, of teenagers, and then they took 267 teenagers, and they did personal interviews with those teenagers, Okay? So, their conclusions were shocking. Here's the first one. There's not really a generation gap because most teenagers like and respect their parents in general. When they were surveyed, do you like and respect your parents? Yeah, I like and respect my parents. Doesn't mean they're perfect. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean our relationship is perfect. But in general, like and respect my parents, okay? Secondly, there wasn't a lot of negative response to organized religion. Most teenagers said, yeah, I should go to church more. Most teenagers said, I don't have a problem with church. And then third, most teenagers didn't describe themselves as spiritual seekers. In other words, they weren't like searching for God. Most teenagers identified themselves as having the same religious affiliation as their parents. And at that time, 75% of them still identified with some kind of Christianity, okay? So the point is simply this. 
pretty good, right? Like we've got parent, uh, teenagers who like their parents, who generally respect the church, and who aren't like testing out other religions. All right, this is a quote. Here's the quote from, from Christian Smith. In spite of their generally positive attitude toward religion, almost no teenagers from any religious background can articulate the most basic beliefs of their faith. So, so this is a quote from an interview with a 15-year-old, and, and she's described as attending two church services every Sunday, Sunday school, church youth group, Wednesday night Bible study. Whew, she is busy. How does she do anything else? Well, she goes to church a lot. And the question that they asked her was, are there any beliefs at all that are important to you? This was her response. Ah, I don't really know how to answer that. Pause. I don't know. I think that you should just, if you're going to do something wrong, then you should always ask for forgiveness, and he's going to forgive you no matter what, because he gave up his only son to take all the sins for you. So this was one of the more articulate responses, according to Smith. Of the 267 teens interviewed, only 12 mentioned repentance in connection with their faith, seven mentioned the resurrection, and four mentioned discipleship. On the other hand, 112 mentioned the importance of personally feeling, being, getting, or being made happy. Uh, Smith kind of coined what he calls the religion of the American teenager, and he called it moralistic therapeutic deism. They're moralistic in that they think they should generally be good. They're therapeutic in that they really want to be happy no matter what. And it's deism in that they're aware that there is a God and he's up there somewhere, but he's not directly connected to their life. So, where do teenagers in America learn this American therapeutic culture? And the evidence is overwhelming. They learned it from their parents, and they learned it from the church. They like their parents. They like the church. Smith concludes, we get what we are. We raise our kids to be who we are. Okay, so why the sociology lesson right here in the middle of a, of a story about Elkanah and Hannah? Here it is. Because it shouldn't take us a sociologist perspective to learn what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, and that is our children, for the most part, grow up to be like us. They watch what we do, they listen to what we say, they spend their money the way we spend our money, they get angry the way we get angry. So for years in youth ministry, I would have these parents come into my office, and they would say, you know, they would be crying, and they would say, I'm losing my teenager and they would say what they need is Christian friends, and what she needs is a youth group, and, and sometimes they would be talking about maybe moving her to a Christian school. Can you re recommend a good devotion book? Can you get him to come to camp? And then even sometimes they would be like, you know, hey, the church isn't reaching out to my kid, and, and he's rebelling because of it. But what these children needed, and what our children need, is the faithful example of their parents. Because if you hope to raise children who follow Jesus, then you need to start by living so that they see you following Jesus. Let them hear the testimony of your faith. Do your kids know the story of how you became a follower of Jesus Christ? Do they hear you and see you praying before 
meals and then other times, not at meals? Do they see you giving? Are you teaching your children to give because they see you giving sacrificially and they see you modeling that? Do they see you reading their Bible? Do they hear you reading the Bible to them? Think about this. Do your children know how the Lord is working in your life? Have you taken the time to just sit down with them and say, here's what God's doing in me right now. Here's a huge one. Do they hear you confess sin, and especially when you've sinned against them? Do they see you choose to be with the church? Do they see us make sacrifices that indicate that our career and our bank account and our golf games are not more important than they are? You know what I think the best thing that we can model for our children? And I got, I'm right here with you. I got four of them. I got one on the way. Weakness. Weakness and dependence. Because I'll bet little Samuel from his earliest days saw faithful Hannah pouring out her soul before the God of the universe. And that had an impression on him. The world says, teach him to be proud. Teach him to fight. Teach him not to take anything off anyone. Make a lot of money. Retire early. Get a job and don't have to answer to anybody. We celebrate as a nation. We celebrate independence. But remember, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Listen to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who does God look to? The humble, the contrite, and the one who trembles at his word. Y'all, I want my children to be counted among those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at the word of God. But, but what I understand and what I'm coming to believe more and more is, if I don't model that in front of them, if I don't live in dependence and humility and turning the other cheek, then they are going to watch me and they're going to learn from how I do live. And I can't be like Eli. I can't be like Eli just being, go be blessed by God, little ones. Go, go out and be blessed by God. I can't be oblivious to what's actually going on in their lives. They need to see me work hard so that I can give and not just so that I can have more stuff. And they need to see me forgive and admit when I'm wrong to God, to their mom, to them. And look, maybe you're sitting here right now and you're saying, I am blowing this. Then here's my encouragement to you. Here's my admonition to you. Go home and follow Hannah's example and get on your knees in desperation before God and confess your weakness and ask for help and then begin leading your children to confess their weakness and seek help from God who is the powerful creator of the universe. Hannah promised that she would give God her son. When you make a vow to God, that's kind of a big deal. And so she takes him, uh, probably about three years old, she waits till he's weaned, and she takes Samuel and she gives him over to Eli there in the temple to serve the Lord. Y'all, it's easy to say that we devote our children to the Lord. It's another thing to live 
practically and do that. So this little boy, Samuel, he grows up to be one of the most important men in the Old Testament. He will fight armies. He will crown kings. He will rebuke kings. He will anoint David, the one through whom the Messiah will be born. And he will preach a message of repentance to a nation that is in need of turning back to their God. So what can we learn from this passage this morning? Just three quick things. Three things that we can learn. First of all, to the mothers in the congregation here, do not underestimate the opportunity that God has given you. Y'all, the early years that we have with our children are so important. Hannah nurtured little Samuel for probably about three years, but it is clear that her influence on him was crucial to him becoming the man that God intended for him to be. Y'all, I believe this. Little children are sponges. God has made them to be sponges. They are watching us, and they are listening to us all the time, and they are learning what, how to live from how they watch us. Tending to toddlers is really hard work, but it's really important work. Y'all, don't think that by, by Samuel going into the temple that he was going off to some kind of like Christian, um, you know, away school. The, re, go in chapter two and read about Phineas and Hophni, the sons of Eli. They're wicked guys and they're doing wicked things in the gates of the temple. And we already know that Eli isn't exactly the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? So you may feel like as a mom that you are doing some of the most mundane tasks imaginable, but you have to know that God has given you a task that is of infinite, eternal importance. God's ways are not our ways. What God thinks is important is not what we think is important. A couple of weeks ago, you know, Jesus was talking to the disciples, and he was saying, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then he takes a child, and he puts the child in front of him, and he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you serve one like this, a child. A child has nothing to offer you in return. Nobody is ever going to say, wow, what a great guy. He served that child. Nobody's going to notice that. You're serving the weakest, most powerless person in society. Jesus says, you serve that person, and you will be great in my kingdom. I think we might get to heaven and find out that all of the really good positions are taken up by moms, and there's none left. Pray with your children. Here's a story. I was in the eighth grade. We lived in Mayfair by Lake Mayer. My mom used to go after we went to school, and she would walk around the lake there, and there was a radio preacher who was just kind of getting started and he was starting a seminary in Southern California. And she prayed over and over again as she walked around that lake that I would one day maybe go to that seminary. Okay? And, 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 and don't hear, like, that from that point forward, you know, she started, like, leaving little brochures, you know, under my bed at night or, you know, next to the breakfast tables. Nothing like that. But 10 years later, that's exactly where God took me. And that's exactly where I was trained for the ministry. Y'all, pray for your children. Pray specific prayers for your children. Devote your children to the Lord. I know this is a broken world. Sin has affected our homes. Not all homes have dads. Not all homes have moms. Not all children have parents. Y'all, I'm, I'm raising a child who spent five years in an institution, the first five years of his life, and he missed a lot 
It is not a perfect world. It is a broken world. This passage doesn't lay any law down on us establishing what a godly household ought to look like. But it does this. It guarantees that your situation does not prevent you from following Hannah's example. And so if, if you are a mom and you have to get up every morning and you have to go to work to pay the bills, then, then bring your children along with you and say, we can't do this on our own. We need to fall on our faces before God and we need to ask him to help us and to heal this broken situation. Number two, getting angry and bitter doesn't change anything. Getting angry and bitter about your situation doesn't change anything. It's worth noting that Hannah has every reason in the world to get bitter and angry. She can get bitter at Elkanah. And you know what? God's ways is not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Our ways would tell her right now, you know what? You should divorce him. You should, you should get out of that marriage. Panina, you know? Go. Hannah, you know what you should do? You should go start a blog. And you should like really let her have it on that blog. You should really let her know. And everybody else, and other people who are having bitter relationships, they can read about your bitterness and they can all, we can all be bitter together. Hannah doesn't do any of that, y'all. James says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I, someone read, somebody, I, I read somewhere recently, drinking poison, no, no, <laughs> being bitter is like drinking poison and thinking that it's going to hurt somebody else. Hannah takes her bitterness of soul and she pours it out before the only one who can do anything about it. Y'all, we need to let Hannah be our example in how we pour out our hearts before God. Because God allows us to bring him all of our hurts and our griefs and our confusions. And let me clarify something real fast here, because I'm going to ruffle a little bit of feathers probably, and I'm sad to say that I'm hearing this more and more among like counselors and teachers, but let me just be clear. It is never okay to be angry at God. It's never okay. God is always good, and he is always just, no matter how incomprehensible his ways may seem to us. And angry at God, to be angry at God implies that he is bad or foolish or weak or cruel. God has revealed his character through his word. He is always good. He is always just. He is always merciful. So remember where we started. If you are suffering here today, and I know many of you are, But if you are suffering here today, remember, God's ways are different than ours. Pour out your bitterness of soul before him. Many men in the scriptures, many psalms represent people pouring out their bitterness of soul before God. But don't be angry at him. Don't call into question his character. Number three, true power does not reside in one's position one's strength, or one's resources, but in one's humility and faith before God. I have a little bit of agenda, an agenda here. So um, I, I'm like, I've got a, like a little running mini-series in my head. Um, like six weeks ago when I preached, I preached on the, the, the God of uh, lost causes. You know, so I, I've got this agenda here. And, and, and if I could, I would love to shape the thinking of the people at CBC to redefine what it means to be powerful, 
I want to redefine what it means to be powerful because I think we're missing it in society and in our families and in our churches because the scriptures could not be clearer that we are fools if we trust in our own researches, resources. As families, as individuals, as churches, y'all, this life is a breath. And I have actually lived long enough now that I can say it feels like it's going by really fast. And we're living in this tiny little blip of eternity. And one day, every single one of us, we're going to stand before God. And in that instance, I promise you, you will know that God's ways are not our ways. And the things that we valued were not valuable. And the, the things that made us feel strong were, were illusions. But the cross redefines everything. Everything about the cross screams weakness and submission and shame. And the world around Jesus thought that he had been reduced to nothing, and they were mocking him, and they were saying, hey, you who said you were going to save us, why don't you save yourself? And yet, what appeared to be weakness in God's program turned out to be more power than the world had ever known. Because that cross, that, that act of submission, that act of dying, that act of shame, it turns out when we die, we live. When we're weak, we're strong. When we submit, we're set free. God's ways are not our ways. That night when Hannah walked out of that festival broken and I'm, I'm done with this, I'm tired of this, and she went and she fell on her knees before God and she wept bitterly, she was a conqueror. She, that obscure woman from the hill country of Ephraim was far more of a conqueror than any king or president that this country or this world knows today. So we're going to close this morning by partaking in the Lord's table and we're going to do this strange celebration because we're going to celebrate broken bodies and, 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 and blood poured out. And it really makes no sense when you think about it. We're celebrating death. But God's ways are not our ways. And so that tiny piece of bread and that, that little drop of juice, it seems like the meal of a pauper but it represents a picture of a huge feast that is to come. So this morning, I want us to take this, this, this Lord's Supper together as a celebration of our weakness. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the cross is incomprehensible to the world, the power that it brings to make us alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Hannah. Thank you for those in the scripture that you have recorded who have wept with bitterness of soul before you, who have poured out their heart. Thank you that you, God of the universe, hear our prayers. Thank you that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Father, may we as a church grasp what it means to be weak so that we can be strong. Give us grace as we go from here, endeavoring to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.